Hello and welcome. This is the Climate Voices podcast and I'm your host, Omesa Mukaya, bringing you the deep dives into the realm of the climate crisis. Uh, this podcast is an open platform through which we break silos and lead climate action one conversation at a time. We bring together scientists, policymakers, um, climate activists and community practitioners to share their positive stories and inspire climate action through demystifying the climate science with the aim of addressing the climate communication barriers that are involved in climate action. our well-intentioned efforts at combat climate change end up doing more harm than a good and it becomes a tough nut to crack as adaptation strategies literally backfire. We call this concept maladaptation and in this episode of the Climate Voices podcast we are joined by an expert who's going to help us navigate through this concept and learn more about how to move beyond maladaptation. Welcome to the show, Professor Lisa Shipwa. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. It's an absolute honor to host you on the show. So I know you are the Professor of Development Geography at the University of Bonn. And I've been involved in what I consider groundbreaking work at the IPCC, which is the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. But could you briefly introduce yourself and, uh, you know, take us through some of the work that you've been involved in and what you're involved in at the moment? Yeah, happy to do so. Uh, Well, I guess I started looking at climate change when I was doing my undergraduate degree in environmental science, and I became really interested in sort of the the sort of different narratives and priorities that countries have to try to address different priorities, like, like food security and environmental protection. And I came across, as I was studying in Botswana, I came across the veterinary cordon fences that have been set up to separate the uh, cattle from the buffalo to prevent the the cattle from having foot and mouth disease and it became really interesting to me sort of i became a little bit sort of anti-cattle and then i came across an article that was about how many uh, how much methane we would actually avoid if we culled all the cattle as a result of the mad cow disease that was also a big thing at the time and it's all these different things connected for me. And I realized that um, what became interesting was really how do different countries, how are different countries able to tackle the different priorities of development and climate change? And so uh, I eventually realized that the most interesting place for looking at these things is through adaptation to climate change. And adaptation, because there are people who have said that it's a kind of a window of opportunity for rethinking development. And so I thought, well, if we, you know, if we can combine addressing climate change and also rethinking development to make sure that it's more equitable, more fair, you know, this could be a win-win. But to be honest, since then, uh, and that was something I came across written in the early 2000s, adaptation hasn't really been used in a way to rethink development sufficiently. And it, I think, still struggles a lot with uh, injustice. And there's still a lot of implementation of adaptation that is very top-down and through that process basically avoids dealing with or engaging with local communities, local issues around vulnerability and marginalization and 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 
in that process just reinforces these these problems, including being maladaptive. So we actually make people worse off than they were before a project that's supposed to make them better off uh, happened. Thank you so much. That's a pretty decent intro into what you've been doing and how you got into this space. So, I mean, you have you have a, a pretty broad background and having lived in different parts of the world uh, addressing climate adaptation, for instance, in um, South and, and Central America, you, from your work, I know you've been uh, in East and West Africa and also in uh, Southeast Asia. So basically most of the communities or countries which are disproportionately impacted by the impacts of climate change and being at the forefront in addressing this. Uh, so my assumption is over time you've seen the evolution of uh, you know climate change adaptation. So could you briefly talk about some of the different strategies you've seen in these uh, different countries or cities or you know communities in terms of addressing the climate uh, crisis? Yeah, well, I mean, I think what's, what I have seen, because I have done work for more policy-facing uh, institutions like Stockholm Environment Institute, and of course also work more in an academic uh, context, and now of course at a university for the last um, few years, including at Oxford before that. And I, I think the what's, what remains somewhat frustrating, I suppose, is that we're still in this big discussion about what's development and what's adaptation. And so in many instances in the, the kind of work that I've done where I've engaged with decision makers, kind of ministers and other kinds of technical people in different countries or even, you know, in ministries of environment, for example, or other kinds of planning ministries, uh, and also worked very closely with development actors, development corporation uh, funders and NGOs and so on, is that there is, on the one hand, people almost... You know, it's it's a big rush to make sure that in the funding um, papers, it's clear this is adaptation to climate change we're funding and this is development that we're funding. But on the ground, most people recognize that it's almost impossible to distinguish the two. And so I think, you know, the kinds of strategies that I've seen are very often things that try to combine multiple kind of have multiple goals. Right. So that we're sort of a win win approach where we're trying to address current existing kind of climate challenges but also thinking ahead while also dealing with the development challenges that are there so you know just access to markets for people living in remote villages like what can you do you know that their product aren't getting you know they're not getting fair share for example they're not getting a fair fair price so for example banana people who are selling bananas in um, southern ethiopia so a lot of people are selling bananas there's a middleman that comes buys the bananas goes away because the farmers don't have vehicles they don't have access to bringing their product to a separate place so they get you know they they have to accept the price that the middleman is willing to to pay farmers are then also stuck in those places if the road road floods and the middleman can't arrive to get you know to get the bananas and the bananas spoil i mean bananas are a good example you could think of any other kinds of kind of cash crop but i think the point is that you you know there are multiple problems at the same time and and you know the fact that this there's this middle person who's getting the biggest share and that the local farmers are basically not getting a lot and then but then also the problems of of climate and the fact that they need water to grow these crops and and so on so i think a lot of efforts really try to address all of these things simultaneously uh, and i've worked a lot in a kind of rural setting working a lot with farmers and often also farmers are very keen to have uh, irrigation a lot of the places where i've worked it's very poor and so people don't have them a lot of them have been relying on rain fed fed um, agriculture so that the rain is the only source of water essentially and so uh, small-scale irrigation 
is often a solution that that people are talking about. But to me, these are very short term, you know, it's very short term thinking because actually a lot of the, you know, the water is also one of these things that is going to be affected by the changing climate. So if we set up an irrigation system, it might be fine for five years, but eventually there might be not be enough groundwater or whatever river, whatever the, the source of the water. Um, and consequently, it's almost, I've always thought that this is a kind of strategy that basically just keeps farmers in some ways in poverty because it's kind of a dead end street that sort of end up back in a few years in a, a position where they're still facing lots of challenges. And so um, my old boss at, at the International Water Management Institute, he, he asked, you know, is agriculture a parking lot for the poor? And I think that that is, you know, we know that not all agriculture, certainly the large scale agriculture, commercial agriculture can be a source of lots of, of riches, but it isn't, it isn't an easy job for anybody i mean to be and and so i think um a lot of thinking around adaptation i find agriculture is a really helpful way of it's kind of the best example and it's also one of the most widespread things that we need to think about in the context of both development and changing climate in urban settings there are other issues uh you know where it's kind of either integrating multiple different kinds of people making sure that there's housing that that isn't going to be flooded um, a lot of cities around the world have big slum areas or even just have flooding in places that are not even not even slums but they're just places where people are exposed to flooding because of the way that there's been a lot of development a lot of concrete a lot of paving over of other kinds of um runoff runoff places so the water just can't escape and, uh, you know, so here it's also kind of, it tends to be around money who has a bit availability, who, sorry, who has the possibility to even move to a place that's drier or safer. Um, and, and so there it, issues are really around kind of marginalization of different groups or exclusion or other kinds of, of discrimination, uh, can happen. And, and especially in the big cities around, in Asia, you'll see that, um, you'll see that in Africa, you'll see that in Latin America, where a lot of, urban kind of the the urban population is composed of a lot of rural people as well and some of these people coming for a longer time some other people are coming for shorter times but they don't have the same networks and the opportunities to actually be integrated in a way that they can actually be able to uh, reduce their risk I like that your work has been mostly involved as you mentioned again with the front and frontline communities uh, which are impacted the most and you have all these uh, you know ideas uh, spanning from your work in academia and also in research and 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 you know towards policy that addresses uh, climate change adaptation so I mean uh, from what you talked I, I picked something about um, development and um, adaptation how they can be looked um, you know side by side but I know you are you're also involved in the intergovernmental panel on climate change um, as a lead author of a working group two, chapter 18 uh, on climate resilient development pathways so do you briefly talk about what climate resilient development is yeah i mean climate resilient development is to some extent exactly what i was talking about it's this kind of idea that you have to bring together both climate change priorities and development priorities or i should say climate change action priorities because uh, and development priorities and that these need to be done in sync in a way that doesn't exacerbate climate change so we don't have lots more co2 emissions or carbon emissions in general uh, and that we also don't expose people to the impacts of climate change by you know saying well the only way to solve the housing crisis and for all these poor 
people here is to make, you know, to use all this land that nobody else wants and build lots of cheap housing uh, along the river. You know, that wouldn't be a solution. That would not be climate resilient development because presumably those people would, first of all, if it's cheap housing, they won't be able to, you know, they'll suffer from heat or um, cold. But heat is a big issue that we worry about in the kind of the equator uh, regions and then um, of course the same is you know the risk of flood for example uh, and and so I mean you know we have to think about all of these things at the same time and it it, it, it in practice is probably extremely difficult I mean it is extremely difficult because we always know that every single decision maker is faced with millions of different priorities you know they've got to decide like you know, I, you know, should, are we trying to build a building here that's going to win an architecture prize so that we get more tourists so that we can have a better tourist industry and get, you know, all our local uh, vendors getting more, more people coming and buying their stuff? Are we going to consider, you know, by building a building here that is going to offer also low cost housing as well as offer space for businesses? Or are we going to use this space to build a better hospital that it's more ventilated where the, the focus is on maybe heat stroke or heat related, uh, issues because our city is becoming hotter and hotter and hotter for example i mean this you know this isn't the kind of question that everybody faces but i you know just to illustrate that there's so many different priorities at the same time and so then you you're you know how can you uh, convince these decision makers that actually by taking looking at climate change and development at the same time it's kind of like multiple wins and so that's kind of the idea behind the climate resilient development is that you've got we have to think about closing development gaps but we have to do it in a way that keeps emissions down so we can't we need a kind of a low carbon type of development but then also because we already have so much climate change we need to think of this kind of development also needs to integrate risk and so adaptation and after that, you end up with this process where it's actually this more holistic perspective. And that's what climate resilient development is about. So as we put effort in, um, you know, addressing climate change through adaptation, sometimes you have seen cases of, uh, you know, where the, the efforts or the strategies go wrong. So perhaps I could be interested in knowing, um, and we, you've referred to this concept as, you know, maladaptation, where it aggravates the climate risks that are, you know, involved, uh, existing at the moment or creates, you know, newly unintended consequences where we thought we were solving a crisis, but we end up creating an even um, worse crisis that um, ends up impacting the people. So could you briefly try to demystify the concept of maladaptation and, and, and what it means uh, in the in the climate um, action arena? Yeah, I mean, maladaptation has actually been a concept that's been around for a really long time. I would say at least the last 20 years, I believe it was already defined in the IPCC's third assessment report that came in 2001. So that means, you know, and that was based on literature that had been published already. So it's a, it's a good, um, you know, has a good two decades uh, on it. And the reason is that I think, um, you know, it was clear that sometimes uh, efforts to address, for example, especially flooding, especially around rivers, have shown to create kind of the wrong type of reaction. So a lot, especially infrastructural protection along rivers, has actually uh, rather than 
making people more risk aware it has actually encouraged people to then move right up against the river and say hey now this wall is here whatever other infrastructure and therefore i'm protected and this is a phenomenon that disaster risk uh, researchers and, and practitioners had seen for a while so it's not necessarily only coming from climate change um so in the 70s we are already in the disaster risk literature you could see people talking about this type of, of approach but uh basically what we notice is that more and more when we're not planning with a good sense of what the local context is or local priorities or what people really want, uh, then we end up often with a kind of strategy that, well, it might not do anything positive. It might actually make people worse off because it could encourage behavior or situations that would marginalize people that were trying to, to help uh, even more. And we see that especially where, and that could mean, it doesn't mean need to mean outside the country. It could mean somebody coming from the capital, coming to, you know, a community in a rural area. And, and they just don't have the understanding of what's happening at the local level. And they're not really, really interested in engaging a lot with the people because it's so much work to build up trust or to even figure out who, you know, who's going to talk, who am I going to talk to and so on. So instead they say, okay, you know, here, we've got this project and here's the funding and we want to do this. And and at the end, the people are like, well, actually now you've made our situation worse. Um, so this can mean like encouraging a type of behavior that means people actually leave and, and, and go away. So you kind of have brain drain, you have capacity drain. So people who are able to, to do certain things previously are no longer there because there's no longer opportunities for them. Uh, or it can create um, institutional processes uh, well, that link to behavior. So if you create, if you decide we're going to have some sort of crop insurance here, you know, a company comes and says, okay, we're setting up crop insurance. So if your crops fail, here's the kind of payout that you get. And, uh, and that makes farmers say, oh, well, okay, then actually it doesn't really matter what I do because, you know, I, all sorts of things can make this crop fail. And therefore I'm going to decide to, I'm not going to be so worried. I'm not going to consider so much how much rain might be coming. I'm not going to worry so much about my soil moisture. And so I'm just going to plant. And, um, and of course, part of the problem there is that you then not only do farmers not do, you know, are not, not behaving in a risk averse way, but they're also then potentially breaking down the kind of social capital that they had before, where they would go to other farmers and say, hey, you know, what do you know about the, the season's forecast? And, you know, how do you, what's your experience? You know, what do you think? What are you going to plant? And those kinds of relationships are really important for farmers to figure out, you know, what's going on. And that, that conversation creates a social capital that can also be helpful in other kinds of problems, right? So um, so there are multiple things that, that can happen at the same time. And the main issue with maladaptation is that we now have about 15 years of empirical examples of adaptation projects being implemented, being studied. And we see that so many of them are not, so many of these adaptation projects are not, not only not working, but they're actually making people worse off because of just all of the things that I mentioned. And and so donors are very concerned and, and they they know that they have to address this problem and, and so are NGOs and so on. But one of the challenges is that it's, you know, these problems are failures, right? They show that the planning process was poor, the um, participatory engagement was poor and so on. And often those who implement the projects don't really want to share that information. So if it's an NGO receiving funding, external funding, they don't necessarily want to go around and advertise that, oh, hey, we screwed up here and we don't really you know, 
you know, here's what, what seems to have gone wrong. So for, for somebody coming from outside to try to understand what's, why is maladaptation happening? We have a limited amount of, of kind of knowledge that we can draw on uh, because this, it's kind of, you know, you want to hide and, and not share this kind of failure information. So I think one of the big, the first steps is to encourage organizations to share that kind of information so that we can figure out and learn a bit more and, and figure out if there's some way that we can prevent this from happening uh, because most adaptation, sorry, most maladaptation is stuff that we are from projects and we can only really see it with hindsight and say, oh, you know, two years out, this project obviously was a maladaptive and made people worse off. It's very difficult to say in the middle of the project, oh, this one looks like it's going badly uh, because you still have time to save it, but also because yeah, it's just you don't have the final outcomes yet, right? So you can't really evaluate whether it's failed or not. Thank you so much for breaking that down to what I, I, I consider an understandable language for whoever has in, uh, gotten an opportunity to uh, understand what maladaptation is. So um, you mentioned that sometimes even planning can lead to maladaptation or poor planning for that matter. So I'm kind of interested in knowing why maladaptation is happening despite you, you've said it was, goes back 15 years where studies have been focusing on what exactly maladaptation is, but it still keeps happening. And as the climate, you know, uh, keeps changing and temperatures keep rising, we tend to be planning, you know, for example, for when what happens when we get to one 1.5 what happens mm. when if uh, you know the scenario takes us to four degrees so that kind of planning and you know the temperatures keep rising spontaneously and you don't know what happens next and sometimes the actions that we put in place that we're going to do end up being maladaptive so what uh what are some of the you know these uh, structures that are cultivating maladaptation and why is it still thriving despite all this literature and all this knowledge about uh you know mal maladaptation yeah, I mean, I think one of the, the biggest reasons is that uh, most of the funding doesn't go down to the local level. So external actors are the ones driving adaptation projects. Um, this is now shifting slightly because there's this new concept called locally led adaptation, which is really being pushed. It has a whole set of principles with it. And most of the donors have now signed up to this concept of locally led adaptation, but it has to be not just in name, right? It has to actually be locally led. So that means uh, it means both management and implementation of projects on a local level. Uh, but the the reason it's happening otherwise is because most of the money doesn't come on a, go, go to the local level. I mean, at the moment, there's about 1% of climate finance that goes down to the local level. So most of the money is still sitting and being managed by external actors and they just don't have that local knowledge. Uh, part of the problem is, I would argue, uh, it, we, that there are certain kinds of adaptation strategies that seem to be more popular that are also more problematic. So one of the big ones is infrastructure. Everything, protecting coastal, coastal settlements, uh, building some kind of bridge, walls, all sorts of things like that. They, you know, they, they look good, right? Like that's the kind of thing that a country would like to have and also the the regional development banks like the African Development Bank and especially the Asian Development Bank they're very keen to fund that kind of stuff because it, it, it's like big big scale things um, but they're totally inflexible I mean you know once you've constructed this enormous 
wall to protect a coastal settlement, you know, how it's not made out of Lego. So you're going to be basically, you know, you're stuck with it there. So you have to have make sure that you've done it right. But often these processes are so lengthy and then, you know, the planning process starts cutting corners. But I mean, we have so many examples where actually there's been a miscalculation and we end up, you know, not only maybe that place itself has been protected, but the place further down the coast uh, is actually receiving a lot more problems now. So that shifts kind of uh, coastal erosion from further down the coastline or it shifts all sorts of problems. Uh, my The example that I tend to use over and over again is from Fiji, where um, a wall was built to protect a coastal settlement. And they didn't consider the fact that actually it also rains sometimes, and therefore the rainwater has to somehow drain. And so the rainwater wasn't draining back into the ocean and they were having flooding on the inside or, you know, and, and, and I just think that, uh, you know, it, it's, you can't necessarily say that all infrastructural projects, adaptation projects are bad, but but so many of the maladaptation examples stem from infrastructure. So I think we can say that infrastructure projects should really consider, you know, take a closer look. Um, but it, because, and that's mainly because it's so flexible, right? So when um, the, the other kinds of, of projects, I think, are when they're slightly more flexible, then it offers, you know, opportunity to fix them a little bit um, easier. And, um, you know, so if, if farmers get very, very thirsty crops or are advised to plant something that's very, very thirsty and there's no market for it, well, okay, in the next season, or at least in a couple of seasons, you can change things. Although if it's fruit trees, for example, that time as well to grow. So, you know, but I think, I think that the, the most challenging thing is that some of these, what we see is maladaptation, um, maladaptive strategies actually undermine opportunities for adaptation in the future. So it's not just that, oh, this was a bad outcome, but actually all the opportunities that the, the uh, chances that we have for it to be good in the future for us to fix the problem uh, have, have been thrown out the window. So when people, I mean, on a smaller scale, you can think of uh, farmers who sell off their livestock during drought and then end up with no capital at all left because it's the drought is so prolonged and they end up then, and then what do they do? They need that the, the cash to be able to buy food because because you know nothing is is growing and and um and they they don't have any animals left and then yeah at the end there's nothing right and so you know that is a very kind of you know where do the farmers go then they've basically driven themselves into um, a poverty poverty trap of sorts uh, and you can think of that at different kinds of scales so um certainly um the food systems or agriculture is one sector that is um, mostly impacted by climate change and I'm assuming there are a couple of you know maladaptive maladaptive uh, strategies strategies or that or things that people put in place but they end up uh, end up backfiring you know um sometimes you've seen that you mentioned corporations and um, industrial agriculture taking place but you know for example in the global south um, agriculture is the mainstay of you know most economies like my country agriculture is the mainstay of kenya's economy and i can say africa's economy actually most of the people are small-scale farmers who are actually greatly impacted by you know uh, the impacts of climate change but in the name of trying to address food insecurity we have seen people or development pandas uh, or donors coming in with promises of addressing that through investing more into industrial farming and one can argue that sometimes the aggravated use of agrochemicals and I saw someone argue somewhere that we could also try to you know embrace more um, you know ecosystem based uh, adaptation or kind of agriculture and the yields go down so 
which actually again try because you're trying to solve an, one crisis but it, it impacts production and and it's not solving the problem at all so in the agriculture system or in the in the in the in, in trying to solve the the food crisis so maladaptation what it's what i'm reading from this it could go either way so is is that something that maybe of you know through your literature i know you have written a paper on maladaptation how when uh, you know adaptation goes um, wrong or backfires so is that something that you can you might want to you know try to talk about uh, whether you know trying to look at the ecosystem way and trying to look at the industrial way sometimes either way something goes wrong yeah absolutely i mean i think um and you could also broaden it to say uh, some some efforts to try to capture carbon emissions, for example, to sequester carbon through through planting planting forests, also have a negative impact. There's a, a a project that from Cambodia that's quite well documented that where there was a kind of a local forest that people were using the resources and collecting lots of different things and selling them, and that was kind of their their livelihood. Uh, and then somebody decided we're going to have a you know a big carbon sink here and we're going to cut down this this local forest and we're going to plant acacia trees instead so that we can suck up the carbon but it completely excluded the uh these people who the local people no longer had any access or any well access maybe but there was nothing to do there because these the, the resources that they had been collecting before were no longer there and and certainly those kinds of of project problems we see so i would say you know this is kind of an uh, then we start getting into kind of talking more about development problems because the, the irony with these maladaptation, it's a, you know, it's, it's like I said, it's been around for a while, but it's sort of recently that everybody's really excited and concerned about it. But actually, we have maldevelopment pro- uh, examples going back for, you know, uh, decades, right? And we know that so many interventions that have happened, uh, I mean, since the 1950s have actually been completely uh, have and just re- led to new problems uh, beginning essentially with when you know countries decided that they were going to to leave the colonies behind i mean that doesn't mean that colonization was left behind and you know this the tensions the problems the the uh, the resource conflicts and so on i mean these are just basically handed handed to the countries through this process of 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 decolonizing uh, and i think that that uh you know, we should have learned much better lessons to understand that if we also lead these climate projects through and adaptation projects through the same channels, the same institutions, the same structures as development projects, we will inevitably have the same kinds of problems where, um, and you can describe that as kind of externalities, but that makes it sound like something benign. I mean, of course, it's not at all. It's really problematic. We shouldn't have any kinds of projects that end up doing harm to communities external or, of course, internally. But but I mean, you know, we're looking at often is these kinds of trade-offs. Again, that, that expression sounds like it's okay, like we can accept it, but we shouldn't accept these kinds of things. And so, um, you know, I think we have to take much more seriously the the knock-on impact that all of these kinds of interventions can have. And potentially, and not just sound like I'm I'm a cheerleader for this because I think it also has its limitations, but it potentially this is where the locally led concept, the locally led adaptation can fill a gap because it can not only allow for this sort of, uh, you know, the local management and this ownership and avoidance of, or a project that can contextualize the vulnerability that can, that can understand, you know, understands what's going on, but also hopefully would avoid these problems where actually 
the local people have a certain kind of aspiration for what their future should look like. And these external projects will come in and they will uh, not at all care and or even, you know, do things that will go against these kinds of aspirations. And so I don't I don't think there's a single uh, kind of silver bullet, of course, but I think it's important to, uh, you know, we do have some tools at our disposal for, for how to uh, avoid projects. And the other thing I would say is... Um, I don't think there's a lot of examples of successful adaptation around. I mean, we we are very, I, I think that's one of the big challenges is how to define successful adaptation. But the project that I tend to use is a very local small scale project of um, that was implemented by a development organization in Bangladesh, where they noticed that when there was a lot of flooding, the chickens were dying because chickens can't swim. And so they decided instead to give people duck eggs and say, here, why don't you instead raise ducks? Because when it floods, ducks can swim. And it was really 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 successful because people were able to accept the meat and now kind of the local restaurants have even taken on it's replaced on the menus it's no longer chicken now it's duck specialties and this has happened over the course of a long kind of several several years i mean this is kind of one of the original projects that i ever heard about and so i would say it's probably more than 15 years since it was implemented but i think it's it's uh you know, the reason behind the success is probably because it was very, very small scale intervention, right? And of one specific thing, it replaced, it could have gone very wrong, though, if people had said, oh, we don't like the duck taste of duck meat, we don't like how to, to, to take care of the ducks, they smell bad, I don't know what. But, you know, there could be a lot of factors where that had, um, you know, maybe that people you could have led to going wrong. But in this case, it was successful. So it just also goes to show that you it's really hard to know what's going to work um, and what's going to fail badly. Yeah, I love the locally led initiatives example and, uh, you know, the chicken and ducks example. So um, what I'm reading from your, you know, this conversation is that um, maladaptation could span, you know, from um, infrastructure to planning and uh, sometimes, you know, um, is it behavioral or psychological, something like that. So knowing all these facts or all this uh, information that we have, how can we steer, you know, clear of uh, these maladaptation pitfalls going forward? Because the climate, yeah. you know, um, is changing. It's here with us and the impacts are happening. People are suffering and, you know, people are being impacted. So how can we steer off, you know, these pitfalls going forward? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's that's what everybody is, is trying to figure out. So um, I would say that, that until now, the research has been really kind of repetitive, like we kind of hit up against the same conclusion over and over that maladaptation happens. And this is, you know, and, and we now have a sense of why it happens. But what previously we, but what we, what we basically concluded is that we only know with hindsight, we can only see after a while. And that's because adaptation projects, you know, I mean, adaptation is a process. And climate change is a process and that it's continuously happening. So you, you know, at what point do you draw the line and say, okay, now we're going to assess whether this is successful or not. I mean, presumably most of these efforts, the evidence will only be cleared five to 10, maybe even longer if you've actually had positive impact, uh, five to 10 years, that is. Uh, but um, so I think, you know, to avoid maladaptation, therefore, we need to look at the kinds of things that seem to be driving it uh, and, and and avoid them in the beginning, in the planning phase, rather than kind of throughout trying to sort of keep, you know, like um, do this evaluation as we're going along and say, or the monitoring process, like, okay, you know, here, oh, this is a sign, because this isn't really like there's like specific indicators that happen in real time that where we can say, oh, this is a maladaptation sign, you know, so the things that we found in in looking at other projects uh, are that uh, 
first of all, this local context, bringing the local knowledge, integrating local actors. That's really, really critical. Making sure that projects don't constantly get implemented by using the same organizations over and over again. And we see this like, you know, donors come into a country, uh, that government has, you know, certain people they want to work with, or the donors already have existing relations with NGOs or other kinds of grassroots organizations. And they don't really want to go through the the trouble of building new relations and writing new memorandums of understanding. And so they say, well, we're going to work with these guys again. And, and so that actually creates marginalization of other groups. So, you know, to vary and to, to avoid making sure that you're not actually working constantly with these local elites, that you're actually working with the people who need the most attention. The other thing that we see over and over again is how development um, agencies or actors, sorry, will use kind of like blueprints, like, oh, this was an adaptation project that we designed for, you know, Vietnam. Now we're going to apply it in Zambia without, again, really considering the local differences, the local context. Uh, and and then I think most importantly, and this is probably the most difficult thing, is really understanding what is exactly adaptation. Like, what do we mean when we say we're going to implement an adaptation project? You know, is it like early warning systems? Is it, uh, you know, better climate information? Is it, uh, you know, making sure that every single household is prepared for a, a disaster? Is it about uh, climate education in schools? Is it about, you know, rethinking, uh, you know, where agriculture, the role of agriculture in the country's economy? Probably it's all of those things. So, you know, but very often we'll see that projects will focus only on one or two or maybe, yeah, you know, and, and not really consider the breadth of, of adaptation. And so as a result, you know, what the outcome is will depend on how we define it. So if we're looking for, you know, early warning systems and say this is adaptation, we're going to set up early warning systems or risk maps everywhere around, around you know, an area. And then we, the way that we try to assess success is by saying, you know, people are now less vulnerable to, to floods or whatever. Yeah, well, not really, because that isn't the ent entirety of what you need to do. So those are just small steps in this bigger puzzle of adaptation. So I think to me, the, you know, these are the kinds of things that, that we need to do. And um, for, especially for the last point, this is where countries are now in a big discussions because within the context of the Paris Agreement, there is this global goal on adaptation that has to be defined. And countries are really struggling to try to figure out what exactly is adaptation in this context. Um, so we're in a kind of in an exciting moment in a, in a way. But I think, as you said in the beginning, I mean, the time is ticking, right? And so we don't have the opportunity to sit around and wait too much. And that's also really problematic for maladaptation, because we also don't have the time really to engage and build trust and, you know, develop the local context and so on, because, you know, that takes time. So this might another be another reason why the locally led approach is preferable because it allow you can, can skip those steps because the local people will be implementing the projects and they understand what's going on as well. So, uh, but again, I don't want to romanticize one approach because I know there has a history of nothing. Nothing is perfect in the developing yeah, world. Yeah, yeah. Thank you yeah. so much for you know um, breaking that up. And I I know we're coming to the almost the end of this we have two minutes left so because I, I realize it's a broad topic um and and you're good at talking about it people talk about it all day so um i mean in in less than two minutes um do you see any optimism about the global capacity to adapt uh, or to avoid maladaptation because i know again we impacted differently you know in different parts of the world so as we come to the conclusion of this yeah thanks i mean i think I do feel optimistic in the sense that it's almost like we've had a breakthrough in the last few years on understanding kind of this 
these barriers and an acceptance and acknowledgement of the barriers facing um, adaptation. And and I think that two years ago, we, we published a paper that received a lot of traction among the donor community. And it was really rewarding to see that they acknowledged that there were these problems that were creating more vulnerability rather than reducing it. And they really want to figure out how to address them. Uh, and I should also say that just given the the number of invitations I've received by uh, donor actors to talk about maladaptation, you know, they take it, they're, they're really taking this seriously. And so I think that that is for me very, very positive. But yeah, we, you know, we're, we're in a kind of in a crisis. And we know that also not only are there these kind of barriers to adaptation, but we also have limits. So adaptation won't be effective once we hit, you know, 1.5 and beyond. And that's the real problem is, you know, how do we manage to get these things going before it's too late, uh, before people have fallen into that poverty trap and before, you know, things are impossible to, to fix. And uh, I do worry a, a lot about that, but to, to be optimistic about it, at least we're, I think we're on the right track for addressing the problems that adaptation has been facing for the last, uh, well, 15 maybe 20 years. So I suppose that that is that's that's the good part about it. Yeah, thank you so much and uh it's it's been really amazing having you share your insights and you know thoughts about uh this topic that has been, you know, in the in the in the discussions and uh, people have been wondering what's happening and how we can do it. So I really appreciate your time, you know, being here to to share some of your insights and I know there are a couple of people who a number of people will benefit from your your insights on this. So do you have any you know like closing remarks that you want to share to our listeners um i think maybe just that that it's it's important to understand kind of you know maybe read up about the different kinds of types of adaptation and there's a lot of really accessible literature it's not all just academic literature there's you know a lot of ngos work on on adaptation and especially community-based adaptation and also if you're interested you can find this locally-led adaptation these principles of locally-led adaptation all of this is online um and and just have to google locally-led adaptation and you should be able to find it. So I guess that's just to say, you know, if you want to learn more, uh, there, there are lots of very accessible resources out there. Yeah, thank you so much. And also I encourage everyone to go read your papers and your, because you have written more on, on, on this concept. Yeah, so uh, thank you so much for being here and for sharing this. I really appreciate it. And uh, it was an amazing conversation. I hope we can do this sometime again soon. So uh, thanks everyone for tuning in. This is the Climate Voices podcast and I'm your host, Omesa Mokaya.